Buford on the web at WAGP.net. Good morning and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and as always, we welcome questions you may have as you've been studying God's Word, or maybe a personal challenge in your life that you would like biblical counsel on. If we can be of aid to you this morning, as Rick just mentioned, all you need to do is pick up the phone locally. It's 525-1859. Our toll-free number is 877-WAGP. Our call letters, WAGP980 is the 877 number. Or, as always, you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. When you email us, um, it will come up on the screen in front of us, and we'll do our best to respond. We get a lot of questions from a lot of places. We can't answer them all, but it gets put in the hopper. And sooner or later, by the grace of God, if Jesus doesn't come first, we'll, we'll, we'll try to respond to your questions. When you do call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question to Deb, and she'll be happy to receive it in that fashion. Rick, as always, it's great to be here for the Bible line. Indeed it is, Pastor. And uh, here is a question that hopped in last week, but we didn't get a chance to get to it. So let's go right now. Uh, Darlene from Buford asks, if a radio station advertises a prophetess, a female prophet or pastor, I would assume, um, events, would it be wrong to support that station? Or is that a gray area that doesn't mean they are compromising their faith statement? We don't do prophetesses, by the by the way. That's right. No, yeah, it's a good question. It's a fair question. You know, uh, it's a reminder to me of the different kinds of Christian radio stations that play across our nation. Uh, there are some places that are partly Christian. Uh, some Christian stations might uh, broadcast Christian broadcasting three or four hours and then secular broadcasting. Uh, it's it's a mixed bag. Uh, they're they're trying sometimes just to stay on the air and not go off the air. So like in one station, Worcester, uh, I came on at 9 a.m. in the morning. Or actually, Bill O'Reilly came on from 9 to 10:30, and I came on at 10:30 after him. He's no longer on, on radio, but my my point is is that's what they had to do to survive. Uh, but I think maybe a worse uh, format is when you have a widespread of Christian broadcasting that represents uh, a lot of different theological positions. And one, it becomes very confusing to the people. And not only that, but sometimes, you know, you will have on a Christian station uh, a good, solid Bible teacher or pastor, and the next hour they have someone on doing transcendental meditation. And, and really, I'm not exaggerating. That's exactly what happens on a number of stations across the country. 
And again, it's the day that we live in. And, and two, because people don't want to be offensive, and there is some female pastor who wants to, you know, share her ministry, uh, not to women, but, you know, she's pastoring a church in violation of the Word of God. Well, many times, if they're willing to pay the fee, the station will receive them. And for some, I fear the only, uh, the only issue is the bottom line. Uh, so I thank God for a station like this that reflects, you know, some theological backbone and conviction, and that's what we're supposed to do, and, and we will give an account for the stewardship of the station just as someone would give an account for the stewardship of their station. So, no, I wouldn't support a station like that. Why, why support a station like that when there's many stations in our country that need your support who are trying to do what God says in his word? So you'll give an account for how you use your money. And so when you're aware of something, then, you know, God's made you aware of that. And he wants you to do something with that information. Anyway, I appreciate the question. And I think someone just called in and dictated a question. They did. And so let's go to that first, and then we'll go back to the email. But if you want to call us again, the number is 525-1859. All right. They would like to know if you know or are familiar with David Platt. And if so, what is your opinion of him? Don't know him. So I'll tell you what I do, though. I'll, I'll Google him and, and uh, pull up a website on him, and uh, I'll read his doctrinal statement, see what I can find out. That's a good starting place, uh, but I can't respond right now. Don't, don't know him. Doesn't have, he doesn't have much national recognition, so I'm unaware of him. That doesn't mean he's not a good guy. He might be a fantastic guy. All right. Jeffrey from Walterboro says he has a friend who says that he dreamed that God was going to give him a car. The color and type were revealed in the dream. He said that he believes in faith that God will bless him with it. Yet he isn't working a job that provides him with the means to purchase that car. It seems like he is exploiting God for his personal desires. I believe this is faulty thinking. I'd like your opinion on this. Well, you're absolutely on track, Jeffrey, from Walterboro. It is faulty uh, thinking. And unfortunately, it's reflected in some of the ministries of our day, this health, wealth, uh, natural mind theology, where people are, are responding uh, not to what God's Word says, but they're responding to what they think people will want to hear. And so, you know, you got guys like Joel Olstein, who are, is incredibly popular, who will not speak about sin. Uh, how can you preach the gospel of grace without speaking about sin? You can't. But, you know, he doesn't want to offend people. So if you don't want to be offensive, then you give people what they want to hear. And the natural mind uh, wants to hear that I can be wealthy. The natural mind wants to hear that I can be prosperous. The natural mind wants to have, you know, these encounters with God uh, that makes them feel good about themselves. But again, God's will never contradicts God's word. And so, you know, the Lord teaches all, all this person needs to do is read the book of Proverbs. Maybe chapter 10 would be a good chapter for them to read in Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs is a book on how to live wisely, and so it opens with an invitation to wisdom. It invites us to live wise, productive lives by hearing the wisdom that's found in that book. In chapter 2, it describes how wisdom will deliver us from 
trouble in chapter three, the fruits of wisdom. In chapter four, a dad's counsel to his son to be wise and to heed the wisdom that he's sharing. In chapter five, how we can avoid scandal uh, by applying the wisdom of God's moral standards. In chapter six, if we're wise, we're going to hate the things that God hates. And so the focus of that chapter deals with things God hates. And all the way up to chapter 10, where he deals with your words and your works. And so God rewards hard labor. The Bible says if a man doesn't work, neither should he eat. And so God affirms the need for his people not to be lazy, but to be productive. A lazy person, the sluggard, is not someone that God highlights and and God doesn't, you know, when when he talks about providing for us, uh, and he uses the example in Matthew 6 of telling us not to worry, and he says, look at the birds of the sky. You know, they don't build these big silos to store all their worms in, um, and yet God provides for them. But for that matter, neither does God drop the worm in the nest. That bird has to get out and scratch for the worm. But God provides for them. And it is a biblical principle. God expects us to work. And in the midst of our work, he provides for us. Now, there are some people who cannot work. They're physically or mentally totally disabled. Uh, Now, I know there's a lot of people that our government is paying disability to, and there's nothing wrong with them because I've met them. I'll say, how do you support yourself? Well, I'm on disability. What's your problem? I got a hip problem. Look pretty normal to me, buddy. Uh, you, you walked here, you know. So some of the things are We have 14 million Americans right now on disability, many of whom aren't worthy of the government to pay them disability, some indeed who are. So sometimes we're not providing for the people that maybe our government should be providing for some of our veterans, and, and then they're, they're taking care of people who shouldn't be taken care of. And that's a system that's out of control. But, you know, your friend is say one, he had a dream that God was going to give him a car and he gives him the make and the color and all. That's sheer nonsense. God didn't give him that dream. Uh, God doesn't give revelation like that. If God's going to speak, he's going to speak from his word. And God says nothing about automobiles. He might give this man assurance that if he'll get out and get a job, that he'll give him food and covering and he might speak to his heart in that way, but he's not going to say, I'm going to give you, you know, a, uh, you know, a Lincoln Navigator black with chrome rims and, you know, a, a white interior leather. Uh, that's not that's not God's word and that's not God's work. And this guy has just got a blown up, deceived way of thinking. You probably need to ask him the diagnostic questions to see if he understands the gospel, because when you got people like, you know, Joyce Meyer and all these other people who are just way out there, you know, teaching these things. And these guys are at home. You tell me he's unemployed and he's probably sitting there watching folks like that on television and and they're propagating this kind of stuff. And then you've got, you know, your uh, your so-called evangelicals who God spoke to me and, you know, they give the basic dictation uh, that God has said, and you know, this is just dangerous. It's very, very dangerous theology. That's why we don't do Beth Moore Bible studies at Community Bible Church, because she's dangerous in some of the approaches that she makes to handling God's Word, and that's not healthy for women. 
So, anyway, I appreciate the question. Let's go to the next one. We had a live caller a moment ago. Um, I don't know if we lost them. When you were walking out of the room, it came up. But if not, we'll go to the next dictation. All right, let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Are you there? I think maybe we lost them unless they're on another line. All right, well, let's go to the dictation. Maybe they can call back. Very good. Uh, Lenny, let's go to Tempest from Hardyville, writes, uh, CBC went on a trip to Israel in September 2012. Are you planning another trip soon? Well, I would love to go back to Israel. Israel is a great place, and the rapture hasn't happened. And if they haven't been nuked or nuking somebody, uh, yeah, we would love to go back. And uh, we don't have a date yet. I toyed with uh, the fall of this year, but I think it's going to be the spring of 2014. So if you want to kind of put that in the back of your mind, I've actually am thinking of April of 2014 as a possibility to go back to uh, Israel. And uh, it is a great, great country to be able to visit. It's a privilege to go there. And it's so helpful to God's people. Uh, Our folks that we we just came back from Israel last fall, and they still come up to me and say what a great time they had and what an eye-opening experience it was for them in terms of their study of Scripture. And that's very exciting. All right. We have a live caller, so let's go to them now, Rick. Good indeed. Thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Yeah, go Hello. ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. We we're, we're having a little technical problem. Go ahead. Okay, yeah, this is Anthony. How are you doing this morning? Hey, Anthony, doing well, thank you. Uh, I haven't called you in a while, but I, I have to ask you a question. Um, how important, not so much a question, maybe a response. How important is it for God's people? Like, for example, we have our Easter extravaganza on Saturday and different functions we have at the church where we invite folks. How important is it for our people to come out and support and to serve? You know, because, you know, we have a lot of friends that come, you know, and uh, and it's just like when you're coming into church, you know, I mean, the ushers and deacons are the first one they see, you know, and they need to have a good experience when they first come into church. Yes. How should that work, too? I mean, should our people come to support this uh, event we have on Saturday. That's I mean, a great question. How does it work? Yeah, it's a great question, Anthony. I appreciate you asking it. Um, for those of our listeners who may be unaware, on Saturday morning, beginning at 10, here at Community Bible Church at our campus, we'll have what we call extravaganza. Uh, last year, we uh, held it off campus. Uh, the parking was very, very challenging. We had about 1,500 people who came Uh, This year, we're holding it here on our campus. We can manage it much better. There'll be pony rides. There'll be jumpers for the kids to enjoy. Uh, There'll be face painting where we share the gospel with the children of the different colors that are striped on their face. There'll be games, competitions, relays, and uh, for many of the children, an egg hunt. But, you know, we want to take what the world has largely secularized and use it as an opportunity to share the gospel on Sunday night, I was in one of our, our associate, one of our associate pastors, um, Matt Lazinski, our pastor of worship, and he um, uh, teaches uh, fifth and sixth grade boys. And I was in that class, and some of the kids are unchurched, but they come to Awana. And, of course, this is the only exposure they have. And based on some of the things they were saying, it was really clear. 
You know, like, what's Easter about? One kid said, the Easter Bunny. Well, obviously, it's it's not about the Easter Bunny. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, that's what families look for now, because we've become so secularized as a culture. It used to be in the 1970s, around 70 to 80 percent of the children under the age of 12 were in church on any given Sunday depending whose numbers you're reading, whose survey you're reading, but I think both are accurate. Now it's between 70 and 80% of the children under the age of 12 are not in church. So they have no idea what Easter is about, apart from what the world has presented Easter to be, a time of chocolate and bunnies. And so we want to capitalize on that, and we want to use that as an opportunity to share the gospel. So we'll have Easter egg hunts, but we'll use that as a springboard to share the plan of salvation. We had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of children who came last year who obviously, as you met them, were going to church nowhere. So how important is it? We see the mentality of a lot of adults might be, well, my kids are grown. I don't need to come. Um, Or I'm newly married and I don't have any children, so I don't need to come. Well, that's the wrong mentality. It's not about us. It's about the kingdom of God. And so just for a born-again Christian to attend our Easter egg hunt, a member of our church, and to invite them the next day to church, because I guarantee 80% of the people who show up at that extravaganza on Saturday morning between 10 and 2, and lunch is served, and it's all for free, by the way, 80% of those people are unchurched. And just for people to be meeting them, saying, hey, I'm so glad you've come. I don't know if you have a place to go tomorrow for church, but would love for you to come back here. We have two services at 9.15 and 11. And just for them to be friendly and to be out there as Christ's ambassadors is a choice opportunity for us to win people to Christ. You think our society is secularized now? You think it's going down fast. Now, you take this generation that's growing up with absolutely nothing about God, and we haven't seen anything yet. We're headed for big, big trouble or the rapture unless uh, unless God intervenes. All right. I appreciate that question. Let's go to our next caller who's patiently waiting. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Sorry we lost you earlier, but uh, you're on the air now. Hi. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning, Rick. Good morning. Yes, um, I said, <clears throat> hate to follow up with uh, such a immaterial question, I guess, but uh, are you familiar with uh, Pastor John Piper and his ministry and the term Christian hedonism, and what's your position or take or understanding of that term? Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm familiar with John Piper, and he's a fine man. He's a gospel-preaching Pastor, I might not agree with every jot and tittle of his theology. I suppose it'd be hard to find any two pastors that agree on everything. But in terms of all the essentials, you know, we're on the same page. And uh, John Piper would, you know, express Christian hedonism, and rightly so, because we're living in a day where Christians are self-centered, where people under the banner of Christianity live hedonistic lives, and they say they're born again. And that's the sad thing. That's the sad thing in terms of um, what we're facing as a nation. Uh, Someone asked me to address this this morning, and I didn't even shoot it to Rick. It came through, but they wanted to know in light of our, you know, former governor running for, you know, the first congressional district. And he, of course, claims to be a born-again Christian. 
and they wanted to know, well, you know, shouldn't we just forgive and uh, let him move on with life and consider him as a candidate? And because someone called in last week and I told them, look, at, I, I wouldn't vote for him personally uh, because, number one, he does a disservice to the church. Uh, now, he can say he's repentant, but how can he possibly say he's repentant? I, listen, it doesn't take rocket science if we're just discerning to know whether someone's repentant. He left his wife for an affair, and, you know, Mr. Appalachian Trail is down in, you know, Venezuela or wherever he is, you know, Argentina, you know, with this lady that he's met. I, I, I've met his wife before, and the precious children God gave him, and he abandons his family uses state money to, uh, you know, feed this problem, your tax dollars, such that he receives the highest fine in the history of the South Carolina, you know, Senate. Uh, He's fined, I forgot, it was 70 or 77,000 because of impropriety on his behalf. Then he says, well, you know, I've repented and God wants me to forgive. If he had repented, when he goes up there and he does that, you know, interview on national TV, he wouldn't say, well, I really, you know, I'm so sorry, but, you know, and I love my wife and my children, but, you know, my, my new girlfriend's my soulmate. If he'd repented, he would have broken off that relationship that day. As it is, he's engaged. Now, I know people come down differently on the subject of divorce and remarriage, and I know God can forgive anything. Uh, if someone comes in and says, I've had an abortion, I dealt with someone last week, uh, he and his girlfriend had had two abortions. Can God forgive me? Yes, God can forgive you. Now, I would never say to someone, well, because God can forgive you, go out and have another abortion because he'll forgive you. Any more than I'd say someone who illegitimately remarried, go, you know, God will forgive you. Um, and even though Christians differ on what the exception clause means, the most liberal uh, expression of the exception clause is that the innocent party is free to remarry. So Jesus made it very clear, if you divorce your wife and you marry another, you commit adultery. Um, and so he's, he's made it really clear. And so if our former governor really, truly, genuinely had repented, he would have broken off this relationship and he'd still be trying to reconcile with his wife and be doing everything in his power to show that he was a changed man. But he's done just the opposite, which is so sad. And that's the Christian hedonism that John Piper is talking about, this self-centered kind of lifestyle done under the banner of being born again, Well, I'm saved and God forgives me. Well, listen, God can forgive and God can forgive our former governor, Samford. God can forgive him. But while forgiveness is free, trust is earned. And it takes time to reestablish trust. It's like if someone is in the ministry and they have a moral fallout. Most denominations or local churches would look a minimum of five to maybe ten years before that person could be restored into full-time ministry in terms of a a pastoral-type position. Uh, But, you know, why why do we do that? Because we recognize it takes time to prove that the character has changed. But, you see, we live in this Christian hedonistic society. We're in the Bible Belt. And look at the fact that, you know, our former governor, you know, in this— race last week got the majority of votes or the highest percentage, 37% of the votes. Now, some people think he's going to win. I mean, he's leading in the polls right now, but does character matter? Character, you better believe it matters. 
And what a, what a terrible message he's sending to those young men, his own boys. He's basically saying, guys, you can blow off your marriage covenant and God will forgive. That's, that's the message he's given to his kids. And I know they love their daddy. I see him up there on the platform with them. And he, he, they want their daddy's acceptance as any young man would. But he's sending them the wrong message and he's sending families the wrong message. My, if our governor, former governor, gets elected in this upcoming election between he and Curtis Bostick, Bostick, who's a great, godly man with five children who's been faithful to his marriage, it will just tell you how hedonistic here Christianity in South Carolina and the Bible Belt has become. But that is, so I think Piper is absolutely on the right page. And he is uh, he's truly expressing the reality of where we live. And of course, this is what Jesus said would ultimately happen at the end of the age. When in Matthew 7, he warns, wide is the road and broad is the, broad, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many are those who are on it. Narrow is the gate, small is the road that leads to life. Few find it. He's not saying that in light of the isms of the world. That, you know, Hinduism and Buddhism and, you know, all these other isms, that those are the folks who are on the broad road. If you look at it contextually, he's dealing with people who say, I'm a born-again Christian. In fact, Jesus doesn't go for some ho-hum testimony. He goes for the most spectacular testimony that one could conceive of. I preached in your name. I did miracles in your name. I cast out demons in your name. And Jesus will say, but I never knew you. Depart from me. And those are people who claim to be Christians. That's Christian hedonism at its peak. And of course, this is what God promises will especially show itself in the last of the last days, Christian hedonism. And I believe those are the days that we're living in. Great question. Appreciate it. Let's go to the next caller or dictated question that's coming. Very good. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi, sir. Uh, Thanks for taking my question. Yes. The question that I had was uh, in the Bible where Jesus displays righteous anger. Uh, We was wanting to know, uh, well, I was wanting to know what it looks like today for Christians. Well, it's, it's a fair question and a good question. Uh, you certainly see it in a couple of occasions in the Lord's life, um, in the cleansing of the temple, which took place twice in his ministry. John records the cleansing of the temple in John 2 that happened at the start of Christ's ministry. And then, of course, this is uh, Easter week. And so on Sunday, he made the great procession into Jerusalem Uh, just as the prophets had foretold Messiah would do. We call it Palm Sunday. The next day on Monday, uh, the Lord Jesus uh, went in and he cleansed the temple. And there was a righteous anger that was displayed. Uh, Anger over God's name being maligned, uh, God's name being rubbed in the dirt, Anger over other people's rights being violated. And so Jesus, when he uh, preached one sermon against uh, the false teachers and the false religious leaders uh, in, the, in the nation of Israel, he gave a series of seven woes. And it's uh, found in Matthew 23. You see the righteous anger of the Lord and largely because other people are being abused. 
Uh, that's okay. There is a case for anger in the Bible, but it is righteous anger. And so we know that because of such statements like, uh, be angry, but do not sin, Paul wrote. In other words, he says you can be angry, but don't let that anger turn into sinful anger. It's just like jealousy. Jealousy, there's a righteous jealousy. God is a jealous God. Uh, and yet there's a negative form, sinful form of jealousy where the Bible can say love is not jealous. Um, you know, when I watched the news the other day, you know, I just about came unglued. I felt so bad for that dear mother who is out there walking her baby. And, you know, these two teenagers came up and demanding money and they ended up shooting the baby in the head, a 15-month-old baby in a stroller, and then shooting her, grazing her ear. You could see the hole in her leg. I mean, yeah, that there's a righteous anger that comes up in my soul over things like that. It would be unrighteous if I went after those kids with a gun because uh, that's the government's responsibility. Uh, now, if my life is being threatened, I have a right to protect my life. But, you know, I don't have a right to express my disapproval beyond the bounds of what God gives in his word. So there's an explosive, uncontrollable anger that displeases the Lord. But there's a righteous anger that deals with uh, the name of God and the rights of other people. And again, we're to be angry, but not to sin. Appreciate the question. Let's go to the next uh, caller or question that's been dictated. All right. Jamie from Washington State writes, I have studied prayer and I'm convinced that it is God's will for us to pray, but I tend to think that we simplify the reason for prayer. And it is so often seen as a way to get what we want, even something as worthwhile as the healing of a sick child, etc. My question is this. Say you have a sick friend, someone who is a blessing to so many, and this friend has Hundreds and hundreds of people throughout the world praying on their behalf. Then, next door, maybe you have a dear, sweet Christian lady who is also very ill, but does not have the hundreds and hundreds of saints praying for her. In God's sovereignty, surely numbers do not impress God. I ask this because I hear so frequently in the stories of answered prayer the familiar line, for so many all over the world have prayed, and it really bothers me. God loves the homeless man that no one knows and the simple prayer his friend might have offered up. It makes me sad to think that we tend to see numbers uh, in prayer chains, etc., as the ticket to successful outcomes and not the God in heaven who controls all things. Could it be that prayer is for those praying and not so much for the intended recipient? Does it change us more than the circumstances for which we are praying? Well, it's a fair question, and um, there was a very similar one last week that came in about prayer. And, of course, I I started by reminding them, well, there's more to prayer than just uh, intercession. There is uh, adoration where we praise God. That's a form of of prayer. There's confession uh, that is indeed for us to get our hearts right with God, and we are to come clean or to get our hearts right with other people. And that's something that God expects. That's something that God wants us to do. Um, And so there's thanksgiving. Uh, We are to give thanks in all circumstances. We're to be known as a thankful people, not as grumblers, not as complainers, but as a thankful people. And there's prayers of intercession, but there is different types of intercessory prayer. There is indeed prayer where, you know, maybe one person will pray. And so it's not always an issue of sheer numbers. Sometimes, indeed, as in the uh, parable of the uh, unrighteous judge, 
Uh, and of course, Jesus tells this uh, parable and of a certain judge who didn't fear God and didn't respect man. And uh, it only took one widow uh, pleading. Uh, and he uses that as an illustration for us in prayer. And of course, he closes, it, closes the whole parable by saying, will the son of man find faith when he comes upon the earth? So it does take only one person to pray. But there are times where there is indeed corporate prayer. In the model prayer, Jesus said, you know, when you pray, pray like this. Not my father who's in heaven, but our father who's in heaven. And so there is a time for corporate prayer when you pray with other other saints. And God many times recognizes that when all of Nineveh in repentance prayed. If there were five people praying, God would have destroyed Nineveh. Uh, much like he told Abraham. He said, if there was just 10 righteous people in that city, I would have spared the city. In Nineveh, it was a place that was covered over in heinous evil. And if you've ever studied, you know, Babylonian cuneiform and read any of the historical accounts on it, you know what an evil place it was. But the people as a whole cried out to God and God was compassionate. And probably the single biggest revival in the history of man took place in a place called Nineveh. And there are places in the Old Testament where the people of God corporately come to God and plead with God and God repents, so to speak. It's an anthropomorphism. God doesn't say, oh, I didn't know they were going to do this, so I better change my mind. No, it's, a, it's an anthropomorphism where human characteristics are used to describe how God acts. And so God, quote unquote, changes his mind or he, he relents, he repents. And because of the earnestness of God's people in sackcloth and in ash corporately praying. And so sometimes, you know, it's all, um, you know, what you're saying here is true, but it's not true. Uh, yes, there's a, it only takes one person who prays for some elderly woman who deeply cares for her. But then there are people sometimes who are prayed for by hundreds of people, and that's okay too. I don't dismiss that as being unspiritual or against the scripture because indeed it's modeled in the word of God. Anyway, it's a good question, a fair question from Jamie in Washington State. We thank you for sending that in. Let's go to the next one. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Carl. I have a question. Um, have you been watching the Bible series that's uh, currently on, and what's your opinion about that? Yeah, I wish I could comment on it. I, I haven't. Um, you know, uh, so I, I can't comment, uh, in fairness to whoever produced it. Uh, so I, I don't have cable. That doesn't make me more spiritual than someone else, uh, pri- primarily because I was cheap and never have had it and don't have time for it. Um, but I would like to see that. And I'm sure, you know, today you can get just about anything after the fact, I suppose. And I'm sure maybe I will see it at some point. But wish I knew more. You could probably Google it. There's probably some guys, seminary professors who uh, love usually, you know, what I would type in Google. I'd type in uh, History Channel, uh, the name of the program, and then type in Dallas Seminary because there's some. Guys from Dallas Seminary, some of my former professors are not pastors. They they give their time to different things for the advancement of the God's kingdom. And you got guys uh, at that seminary, great seminary, who will evaluate things like this to the minutest detail. Now, if it's put together by lost people, there might be some mistakes in it. Uh, 
you know, sometimes lost people have put some things together that Christians are highly critical on. Uh, you know, they see error in it and they crucify it. Um, when in reality, God may want to use it. It's like that movie that uh, the Roman Catholic producer produced some years ago called The Passion of the Christ. I did see that movie, and there was a lot of error in it. But I uh, was glad that people were going to it, to see it. Uh, There was no error in it that was going to prevent, you know, People from coming to disbelief in God's word, but find details that someone who knows their Bible will immediately pick up. For instance, in the arrest scene, they had, I don't know, 10 or 12 soldiers that come to arrest Christ. The Bible says a multitude came in Mark's account, a great multitude. Matthew says, John says a Roman battalion came and a Roman battalion could be 600 or 1,000. There was a small and a large battalion. And John tells us a Roman battalion led by a Roman kiliarchos, a Roman cohort. Uh, the King James says a chiliarch. Chiliism is our word for a 1,000. A leader of a 1,000 men came. No wonder John said a great multitude. Not to mention the temple police were there, which Josephus would have put at a minimum of about 250, plus the scribes and Pharisees. So it is a great multitude. And he has about 10 or 12 people coming um, and misses some key details in the arrest. But was uh, I was going to encourage people not to go to the movie? No, they're going to think about the crucifixion. It's going to create some great conversations. So unless there's just utter sheer heresy, that is going against the plain teaching of God and denying what he has plainly said, some miracle or whatever, then I'd have a real problem with it. So sometimes Christians can get kind of pharisaical in their evaluation when you've got a non-Christian who obviously obviously he's not going to know the scriptures as well as we are. And unless he consults some Bible scholars, he may tend to make some mistakes. But if God's word is being promoted positively, that's a good thing. So, again, I've not seen it, but that's what I would do. I would Google the title of it, put up in the Google line, Dallas Seminary. I guarantee one of my professors at Dallas or one of the new scholars there will have evaluated it if you want to see some of the fine nuance that's uh, uh, evaluated. Anyway, appreciate it. Let's go to the next question. All right. Thanks for holding. You are on the Bible line. Good morning. Good morning. How are y'all doing? Doing fine. Thanks for calling today. How can we help? Um, I was just wondering what the Bible says about the death penalty. About the death penalty. That's a great question. I believe that God's Word teaches the death penalty, but under certain criteria. Uh, the death penalty is established as early as the book of Genesis chapter 9. And in Genesis 9, God says, uh, whoever sheds man's blood... By man, his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God, he made him. So God gives a very clear dictate for capital punishment. Later on in the book of Exodus, chapter 21, let me just turn over there for just a minute and read some verses to you. Um, Exodus 21, let's see, I think it's around verse 12. Here it is. It says, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place to which he may flee. So he makes a distinction between uh, murder, premeditated murder, and uh, what we might call, you know, secondary murder, in which uh, there was a a place in which the, the person could flee. 
And again, God gives some very clear instruction, even in the Decalogue, you know, uh, unfortunately what happens sometimes is we take the old English and we confuse it with what the Hebrew text says. It says in Exodus 20, for instance, in verse 13, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. That's what God's word says. Well, in the old English, it says you shall not kill. Well, what is it? Well, um, again, in old English, they didn't have the word murder. And so context would determine it. Just like um, it says in uh, uh, Genesis chapter uh, 21. Uh, I'll give you another example of the difference between old English and, and new English. It, it says that, um, well, let me just turn there, excuse me, Exodus, uh, Genesis 22, in Abraham, uh, God tempted Abraham, the Old English says. Now, the newer translations will say God tested Abraham. Well, which is it? Well, you know, it doesn't mean in our English today that God tempted Abraham. Why? Because God tempts no one with evil, the Bible says. God's very clear on that. But in Hebrew, there's one word that context determines whether it's a solicitation to evil, what today we would call temptation, or whether it is a test of a sort to build or to reveal character. And so there's one word in Hebrew, and by the way, there's one word in Greek. And so like in James chapter 1, it says um, when he describes uh, trials that we we go through, let me just read there because, again, this is a good illustration. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And then a little bit later in the same chapter, he says, let no one say when he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. It's the identical word tempt and trial in the Greek New Testament. Now, in the Old English, it just uses the word tempt. And they assume that in your mind, and based on the context, you can determine which is in view. And so there's one word in the Old English, there's one word in Greek, there's one word in Hebrew, and context has to determine. In the newer translations, because today the word tempt has taken on an entirely different connotation, where um, clearly it's always a solicitation to evil, we distinguish it with the word, say, trial or test. All right, so when you come to Exodus 20, and this is what entire denominations use, you shall not kill. And so if you're dealing with the Amish or the Mennonites or different pacifists, like in Eastern Europe, most of the Baptist church are pacifists, and they'll take you to this text. They'll say, well, the Bible says you shall not kill. And that only God has a right to kill. Well, uh, God has given that right to man under certain circumstances. And again, if you just keep reading in Exodus 21, 22, and 23, he talks about when it's legitimate to take a life and when it's not. Like someone breaks into your house at night and you can see that your life is not threatened and... um, uh, then then it's fine. So he uses the illustration here of someone breaks in during the day. You can see your life is not threatened. You have no right to take his life. But if your life is being threatened or you can't tell, then you have a right to defend yourself. And if you take the person's life, it's not considered murder. So we had that case in Texas a few years back where you had this fella who was breaking into the next door neighbor's house 
And uh, the neighbor was watching the house while they were gone on vacation or wherever it was. And he calls the police and he says, hey, uh, my next door neighbor's house is being broken into and they're climbing in the window and, um, I, I, you know, get here. And, you know, I got my gun, but I'm going to shoot him. And the lady over the phone said, please don't shoot him. Please wait until the police arrive. Look, if you don't get here soon, I'm going to shoot this guy. Please don't shoot him. Wait until the police arrive. Boom. You can hear this shot. It's all on record. Goes to court, and a jury of his peers finds him innocent. Well, he wasn't innocent under God's law. He might have been under man's law, but not under God's law. Because, number one, his life was not threatened. Someone else's property was, but that's not a reason the Bible teaches for taking another person's life. Had his life been threatened, then he would have had a right. Shot the guy in the back. But he's set free. So Genesis 9, God dictates capital punishment. You come into the New Testament in Romans chapter 13. uh, God specifically uh, says in warning his people for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it, rulers, government, not us as individuals, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid because it does not bear the sword for nothing. And no one debates here that this phrase, the sword, is a reference to them being able to take another person's life. Now, sometimes people boil it down and say, well, look at capital punishment doesn't work. Well, it can work, but just because we're applying it improperly, uh, doesn't mean that it won't work. Uh, we, we need to properly apply capital punishment. And God gave some standards. Only on the basis of two or three witnesses let everything be confirmed. So you, don't, you, can't, you can't take another person's life on the basis of one testimony alone. There has to be two or three witnesses. One of those witnesses might be DNA in the day that we live in and some of the sophistication that we have. But still, there has to be ample evidence because God gives some very clear guidelines in that respect. And he also tells us in the, uh, in the book of uh, Ecclesiastes that if you don't uh, express capital punishment in a timely fashion, then it will not be effective. And so when you have people who take another individual's life and it takes, you know, 25 years, for that person on death row before he's executed, then it's ineffective. So listen to what he, I just turned here to Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly. Therefore, the hearts of the son of men among them are given fully to do evil. So capital punishment for which God designed it doesn't work when someone is tried and through a a crazy series of appeals that are never ending. It takes 15 to 20 years. I forgot what the average is now, but I think the last time I preached a, a sermon on capital punishment, the average stay on death row was like 17 years. Well, yeah, then it's not going to work. That's what this text says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly. Therefore, the hearts of the son of men among them are given fully to evil. There was a time in England where they efficiently, fairly, and consistently express capital punishment. The police didn't even have to carry guns. The first time I went to England in the early 70s, I was a student in high school, the police were just carrying nightsticks. Nobody carried a gun. 
because there was no murder. But in 63, they had lifted capital punishment, and it began to change. They went back again in the 80s. They had firearms. They went back again in the uh, early 2000, and they had, you know, Uzis and uh, high-powered weapons uh, because the murder rate has been explosive in that country because they did not, no longer apply capital punishment. So, you know, we think we're smarter than God and we're going to outlaw capital punishment. What we need to look at is capital punishment executed clearly. When I come to our study in Romans, we'll look at this in depth. So you might want to wait for that sermon when we come to Romans 13. Good question. Let's go to the next caller or dictated question. All right. Well, in a similar vein, our next caller says he has a concealed weapon permit. He carries a weapon with him for his personal safety, and some friends have told him that he's not showing faith and trust in God to protect him. He prays that he'll never have to use it. What do you think? Well, um, I'm not opposed to uh, a concealed weapon. I don't have a concealed weapons permit, but I wouldn't be opposed to getting one. Um, Again, uh, read these chapters in Exodus, beginning in Exodus 20, and read the next three chapters, and read Genesis 9. And God gives a right for personal protection. I mean, ask yourself, what if uh, someone breaks into your house at night? Is the pacifist going to say, oh, I can't take your life, you know, go ahead and rape my wife and murder her and kill my children because I'm a pacifist and I can't protect them. No, I'm going to, you know, that's nuts. You're going to do, I hope, everything in your power to protect your family. And God gives a right. And if it means taking another individual's life to protect them because their life is legitimately threatened, then God gives you a right in which to do that. Well, when a society degenerates, then indeed it becomes more dictatorial. Freedoms are lost and two violence increases. And so this is the day that we're living in. Uh, Just watch WTOC any night in the first five minutes of the news of the shootings that took place in Savannah. I mean, the first five minutes, so-and-so was murdered, and uh, this guy was shot, and, you know, it happens. And talk to the deputies here in our own county. It happens every single day. So if someone feels the need to protect themselves and others, because I think if I understand a concealed weapons permit, then you have an obligation to protect others if you're in a situation, uh, then so do it if that's what the Lord's led you to do. So I have no problem with it. Uh, There is uh, some exceptions under the law in churches. So your concealed weapons permit, if you remember from the course, is not legitimate in a local church unless you have permission from the pastors or authorities in that church. Then it's legal. So on any given Sunday morning, we've got a dozen people with concealed weapons at Community Bible Church, and I'm glad they're there. If some nutto walks in, there's going to be an accounting. And we've got people there to protect our people, and we need to. This is the day that we live in. A lot of churches don't. And, but we do. In fact, we just had someone here for training two weeks ago, and they trained a dozen guys further in church security. It's the day that we live in. So anyway, I appreciate the question. Let's go to the next one. All right. I think we've got time for one more. Ryan from Boston asks the following. In terms of studying the Bible, I just finished studying Daniel using sermons from Chuck Swindoll. I listened to the sermons and took notes. I also listened to some of your sermons. 
I really enjoyed sitting at my desk with my John MacArthur Bible and listening to sermons on the text because I received so much out of it, than, uh, more out of it than if I just studied it on my own. My question is, is there anything wrong with utilizing available resources, sermons, study Bibles, commentaries, whatever, uh, whenever I study the Bible, or should I sometimes tackle Scripture on my own? Should I just use the Bible in my morning devotions and study the Bible using sermons, etc.? I want to make sure I'm getting what God said, which is why I love the resources. What are your thoughts? And also, uh, do you recommend the Apologetic Study Bible? Great question. Um, I know when I was a new and young Christian, I was like totally dependent on commentaries. That's not to say that God couldn't speak to my own heart, but, you know, I was so new to the scriptures. I wanted to see other men that I knew were orthodox in their Christian faith, how they understood it. Uh, As I grew in my relationship with Christ and grew in my knowledge of scripture, uh, I felt a little bit more confident. And I've been blessed as a pastor to go to a seminary where you study all 66 books of the Bible. And their goal is to teach the guys who are at least in the THM program, uh, which is a four-year master's program, uh, on how to write commentaries. That That's their goal. They're actually equipping you to be able to write critical commentaries. By critical, I don't mean like attacking the Bible, but interacting or interfacing with the Word of God. And so... Um, you know, there's nothing wrong, though, with you reading other people's commentaries. I, I, I occasionally meet someone who will say, well, I, you know, I don't read anybody's commentary. I just let God speak to my heart. You know, super spiritual. Um, what you're basically saying is God can speak to your heart, but he can't speak to anybody else's heart. And that's not good. So um, you should be open to hear what other people might say about a text. And not to mention that sometimes our exegesis can be colored by the climate that we're in. And so even to read historical theology, well, how over the history of the ages have people understood this text? So all of a sudden people are having this new revelation, for instance, that it's okay for women to be pastors. 1900 plus years of church history, nobody saw that. But now all of a sudden, you know, all these guys for 1900 years of church history had just missed it. And we have this new fresh insight why Beth Moore can preach to a mixed audience on Sunday morning and why women can be pastors and and prophetesses and do these things that historically we said was a role committed to men because God had a different plan for women. So if it's new, it's, it's not true. So there is a uh, real help and balance sometimes in historical theology and reading other commentaries. So don't be afraid of it, but you want to grow too in your ability to dig out of the word of God for yourself. And God will help you do that as you seek him and you pray and you beg him for his wisdom and insight. Well, we're out of time today, but as always, it's a pleasure to be here for the Bible Line. Several questions we didn't get to, but God willing, in our next time together, we will hope you have a great day. Lord bless you. 